Firstly, Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Turning to Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe, observe the Sabbath day. Well, as we come to the fourth commandment, all of us have been shaped by our upbringing and our past experiences. I'm, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but for some of you this morning, as you think back to what Sundays were like when you were little... They were the strictest day of the week, with more rules on the Sunday than there were for the rest of the week combined. Others of you had a very different experience. Perhaps uh, your family did or didn't go to church, but the rest of the day looked exactly the same as every other day of the week. You you did shopping and studying and cinema trips and chores and everything else that you would do. And, And whatever your experience may have been, it has shaped you today. So when you finally moved away from home, whether that was for university, for job, whatever it was, you needed to decide how you were going to treat Sundays. Some of that, God willing, Lots of that was going to be shaped by your conviction of what the Bible teaches. But how you understand what the Bible teaches has been shaped by how you were brought up. And there are some things that you do today because you are emulating good patterns that you are thankful for when you were younger. And other things that you do today that are the opposite to what may have happened in your home when you were younger. Now, in one sense, the sad thing about all of that is that when we get to the fourth commandment, for many of us, the temptation is to jump straight into the rules about what we can, can't, should, shouldn't do on the day. And that's sad for a whole number of reasons. We'll think a few of them this morning. But one of the most obvious is that this is the first commandment to be stated positively. If you look at all the commandments, numbers 1 to 3 and 6 to 10 all begin with a negative, you shall not. It's 4 and 5 that are stated positively. Now, I hope 
you've seen as we've worked through the first three commandments that that doesn't mean there aren't positive things to say about the others. Of course there are. But don't miss the obvious either. That in the way that God has given us this gift of a day, even the way it's expressed in a commandment is meant to remind us that this is a positive blessing. It's not something we're supposed to think is restrictive and onerous. And what I want to show you today is the goodness and the blessing of the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. Now, we may come to different conclusions in our theology and our practice, and that's okay. Let's just be really clear about that from the very beginning. God himself teaches us, as we're going to see in his word, that you will come to a different personal conviction about how you will live out this day. And actually, if you look through the history of the Christian church, faithful men and women have come to very different conclusions about exactly what it means and how we live it out day to day. So if you just limit yourself to the reformed confessions that came out of the, of the 16th century and are there or thereabouts, even just the reformed confessions have got different emphases on how they understand what the Sabbath was, what it's connected to, and how it's to be lived out in the New Covenant. And so in light of all of that, we as a church family want to show the same kind of grace in the way that we talk about this subject. So if you're new to us, if you're a member in our church family, we don't ask you to subscribe to one particular approach to a Sunday. There's freedom here, and that's a good thing. But we also need to have some clarity about how we as a church are going to teach and lead one another. And so for that purpose, all of the elders and the deacons in our church affirm that the way the Baptist Confession of Faith summarizes the teaching of the Bible, and that's, that's all that's going on, okay? The Bible's the authority, and the Confession of Faith is a summary of its teaching. We, we see that as a helpful summary of what the Bible is teaching. And this morning, I'm going to try as best I can. I'm sure I'm going to fail in lots of ways. But I want to wrap my arms around all of the breadth of all of that. Okay? I know some of us are going to be starting different places. And I know that in the freedom of our conscience, we're going to land in slightly different places. And all of that is fine. But what I want you all to go away with is seeing the goodness of the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. And to see that, we need to go back to the beginning. So first of all, let's look at God's good purposes in the gift of a Sabbath. The uh, two passages that Richard read for us earlier show us that even for the Jews, the Sabbath was anchored in the past and not just tied to the Ten Commandments. Part of God's good purpose in the Sabbath was to have his people remember the past. And when you hear the word remember in this context... We need to hear that the same way that God has used that word through Exodus to this point. It's not that God asks you to call it to mind and then just move on. If you do that with a birthday and an anniversary, you are rightly in trouble. (laughs) But we've seen that that's not what God intends by that word either. So when we were in Exodus 2, you might remember when the Israelites were in Egypt, they cried out and God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What happens next? Does God sit in heaven and think, oh yeah, I remember saying something to them about that. And on he goes. 
No, it's a way of describing God bringing to mind what has been said and acting on the basis of it. That's what remembering means in this context. So, what are we supposed to remember with a view to it leading us to action? Well, Exodus 20, God takes us back to creation. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it... You shall not do any work, neither you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, for here's the history to be remembered on this day. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth to see in all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. With all of the cultural pressures that we are facing today in our generation, lots of Christians are spending more time going back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We are reminding ourselves and growing our understanding of who God has told us we are and who he tells us he is. But God doesn't only anchor our identity in Genesis. He also anchors our week in Genesis. Why do we have a seven-day week? God could have made the entire universe in six nanoseconds. It's not that God did one thing, needed a breather, and then did something else the next day. He's limitless in power. Could have done the entire thing in one split. You couldn't possibly even describe the fraction of a second. Why did God choose to make all of creation over the course of six days and rest on the seventh. It's to give us a pattern for how we are to live like him. It's to give us that sense of what it looks like to image him in his world, even in the way that he works. Now, that's not to say that God needs the rest on the seventh day like we do. Because we get to the end of six hard days of work, and we're shattered and need a break. God doesn't get tired. God's sense of resting on the Sabbath day was because he had finished the work that he intended to do, and he sets that day apart. But the pattern that he sets for us, as his image bearers in this world, even imitates the way that he works and rests. And that explains why this commandment is often referred to as a creation ordinance, a rule that comes out of creation. It's not, it's not just a commandment that God gave to the Jews at Sinai. If I can put it this way, our, our working and resting isn't just a matter of law-keeping. It's an issue of theology and identity. So the reason we rest is not ultimately because on the top of a mountain, God made a command. It's because all the way back at the very beginning of creation... He made us in his image, which of many, many things means we reflect his pattern of working and resting. That's not the only thing we need to remember from the past. When, when Moses repeats the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, he tethers it to a different event in the past. Not to creation, but to redemption. So if you've got Deuteronomy 5 in front of you, look at verse 15. 
having repeated the whole principle of keeping the seventh day special, he says in verse 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, here's the reason anchored in the past, therefore the Lord has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Now that's, that might seem like a really different reason than we've just had in Exodus 20. But if you go back to Exodus 20, the whole of the commandments are wrapped up in God's act of salvation. We saw that in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So there's no contradiction in Deuteronomy. It's not like Moses forgot the reason that God had first said, tried to think of another one and came up with something different. He's expanding on the fullness of the things that God's people are to remember on this day as they remember the past. They're not just to remember that God made all things. They're to remember that they're a rescued people. That they were rescued from a place that they couldn't possibly help themselves in and God needed to do everything for. And and the pattern that is coming out of this is God knows who we are. He knows how we think and he knows how we forget. We've seen that in just the first 40 days after the Exodus, haven't we? The last few chapters before we get to the Ten Commandments, there's all these different occasions. You've just had all of the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and it doesn't take them 40 days to have forgotten all of the ways that God's provided and to start whinging and complaining and sounding entitled. And it's because God knows that we are forgetful and sinful people that he has set apart one day in seven where we not only remember creation, but we also remember that we were slaves and have been set free. That's the blessing of all that comes out of the remembering from the past. And it gives us a bit of an indication about what this remembering leads us towards in action. So in Exodus 20, the big vision that you have of God is of him as the creator. And we're not. And yet, in his unbelievable grace, he makes men and women in his image to do all sorts of things. But one thing is to reflect the way that he has worked and rested. And all of that should lead us to humble praise because of who he is and how he's made us. But it doesn't stop there. You get to Deuteronomy 5. How does remembering the past about redemption lead us to action? It should lead us to rejoicing because we too were once slaves and stuck in a world of sin and suffering and have been set free even though we couldn't rescue ourselves. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Those two reasons would be enough in themselves. But in the goodness of the Sabbath... God blessed the Jews with more good things in the present. Both Exodus and Deuteronomy emphasize the importance of rest. Rest and recuperation. Sabbath literally means to cease or to, or to rest, which is what God calls his people to do. And just try and put yourself in the shoes of the Jews who heard this for the very first time. They wouldn't hear... On the seventh day, you are to do no work as a bind. They've just had 400 years as slaves. They've just been abused and beaten and taken advantage of and worked to the bone for every single minute of every single day. And now God says, every single week, I want you to have one day 
where you do no work. Jews would be like, yes, brilliant. What a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. And it's a gift of grace to all people. Whatever your status. Remember the hierarchical system that would have existed in the ancient Near East. Look at the list and the breadth of all of the people who should be benefiting from this covenant. All men and women, all children, all workers, even the animals. Because part of what it means to image God's world in the way that he has made us to be like him is to work creation for six days and give creation a Sabbath. Now, all of that is a great gift, but it's also a great step of faith. Think of what it would have looked like to all the nations around the Jews, both as they traveled until they got to Israel. There's this group of people, big group of people, multi-million groups of people, who every seventh day stop. It would be like a COVID lockdown every week. And all of the other nations are just busy going around, doing everything they do every single day, earning more money, providing for themselves, largely agrarian society, doing all sorts of things that needed to be done. The Israelites stopped, which meant they didn't get the additional seventh day's income. So this resting is also an act of faith. It's a very literal way of entrusting your own provision and the way that you care for your family and the people that you're entrusted to look after to God. So, so rest and worship, they're tied together as an act of both obedience and faith. So God blessed the Jews with rest and recuperation. He also blessed them by calling them together for what he calls a sacred assembly. And we see that in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 2, where God says, There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. So yesterday is a, re- a day is a day of rest, but it's also a day of, we call it corporate, meaning together, corporate worship, like this. It's a day when you don't just put down your tools from all of the other good things that fill your day from Monday to Saturday. You gather together with other Christians, Old Testament believers in this context, And you worship God together so that you encourage each other to keep going. And in particular, you encourage each other to keep this commandment. It would be a really hard thing to do if you were to try and keep the fourth commandment on your own. And we were praying in the pre-service prayer meeting for the millions of Christians today who can't meet with anybody else for fear of persecution. We need to keep praying for our brothers and sisters in that situation. But, but the calling, the provision, is to meet together for a sacred assembly. You remember the past, you enjoy the rest and the worship of the present, and all of those factors together formed a sign of the covenant that God gave to Moses. Now, we need to be careful to distinguish what's going on here so we don't draw the false conclusions Let's start with the premise of God giving covenants. God regularly gives signs when he makes covenants. 
So he knows we're forgetful. He knows that he's going to make promises and we are going to quickly forget them. So he very graciously gives us physical signs that we're going to keep seeing in the world that remind us, oh, God has promised. So he gave Noah the rainbow. Sealed the covenant with Abraham with the sign of circumcision. And in a particular way, when you get to the covenant with Moses, he gives his people the Sabbath. I'll come to what I mean by gives his people in a minute. But here's Exodus 31. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now here's the nuance. God is not saying that the Sabbath is only for the Jews. Because the Sabbath was created at the very beginning of time for all men and women. And nor is God saying that he is speaking to the Jews for the very first time about the Sabbath. Because he's already spoken to them in Exodus 16. You might remember in the um, aptly named Desert of Sin that as the people were moaning and grumbling about the fact that they didn't have any food to eat and they were longing to be back as slaves in Egypt, what did God promise to do and did? He rained down manna from heaven every single day. Every single day apart from Sunday, or Saturdays, forgive me, the seventh day. It tells us in Exodus 16, verse 23, that on the sixth day they're to gather double of the amount of food because tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So even for the Jews as a nation, the Sabbath existed before you get to the Ten Commandments at Sinai. But in a special way, God tied it to this covenant with Moses as a sign. And as you read through your Old Testament, you're going to see that the Sabbath functions a bit like a barometer. When God's people are loving him and walking faithfully as Bible-believing Jews, they kept the Sabbath. And when they drifted, When they turned their eyes to false gods and stopped loving and serving the one true and living God, they stopped keeping the Lord's day. It's a reason that it functions as a sign through the old covenant. Now that's my whistle-stop tour of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. The one big idea I want you to have in your head is that God has good purposes in giving us the Sabbath. Now we need to think... How does all of that trace through into the new covenant? How do we trace God's plans in the new covenant? Some people make a a very strong break between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And particularly on this subject, you you might have heard people say, well, there's, there's no repetition of the command to keep the Sabbath special in the New Testament. So it's not a command that we need to obey today as Christians. And that's partly true. Um, To the best of my knowledge, the fourth commandment isn't quoted in the New Testament. But then neither, to the best of my knowledge, are commandments one to three. And I don't think anybody's arguing that 
those commandments don't continue to apply today. So, so the more careful question, if I can put it that way, is how does Jesus fulfill the old covenant aspect of the fourth commandment and how does it still apply to us today? That's the important question that we really need to wrestle with. And we can't cover every detail in the New Testament, but we need something of an overview because otherwise we've just heard a Jewish sermon and we've no idea how to live it out as Christians. So let's start with Jesus. Jesus declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. To every single Jew who heard that, that was a clarion sound for a claim of divinity. Think about all of the the God-orientated elements of the Sabbath that we've been thinking about. All of the things that it pushes us back to in both creation and redemption. For Jesus to say to all of those Jews that he's the Lord of the Sabbath is to say that he is not only a man from Nazareth, but he's God-made man. And in all of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, he never anticipated the abolition of the Sabbath. If you look at the way that Jesus talked about other things, like the food laws, for instance, he described how there would come a time when the food laws would be abolished and you would be free to eat everything. But he doesn't speak in those terms about the Sabbath. What he abolishes are all of the man-made rules that people had created, Jews had created, in an effort to try and earn their standing before God. And reading this week, some of their rules, they're nuts. This is not what the Old Testament teaches. These are the extra rules that were added to try and earn salvation. Examples would include, uh, you were free on the Sabbath to dip your radish into the salt. But if you left it for too long and it started pickling, that was considered work. Perhaps one of the saddest examples, and there are hundreds to choose from, uh, would be uh, the example of a wall that falls down on the Sabbath. If a wall fell down on a human being, you could move enough of the rubble to see how badly they were injured, but if they weren't in a life-threatening situation, you needed to leave them there and go back the next day to help them out of the rubble. That's all of the nonsense that Jesus was so clear to get rid of and say, you have completely lost the gift and the grace of the Sabbath to start piling all of these rules on top, which is why when you go through the Gospels again and again and again and again, Jesus deliberately heals people on the Sabbath. He's quite intentionally showing us that, that those acts of necessity and mercy are good things to do on a day that is supposed to be set apart for all of the good things that we've seen in the Old Testament. Now, on top of all of that, we've got two brief references to the first Christians changing the day of rest and worship from the seventh day to the first day, in our terminology, from a Saturday to a Sunday. But if you look in Acts 20, or in 1 Corinthians 16, when you get home, you were not given an explicit reason for why. 
nor are we given an explicit reason when John is described in Revelation 1 as, as being uh, worshipping on the Lord's Day. We're not given an explicit reason for why the name has changed. But the simplest explanation is the best explanation. The first Christians, they kept that principle of a day of rest that we need because we're men and women made in the image of a God who works and rests and they changed the day so that when they gathered to worship, they were celebrating the fact that we've been rescued not from Egypt and slavery but from sin and eternal suffering by the death of a saviour who's risen. Which is why every Sunday, these early Christians got together to celebrate what it means to be Christians. Now in Hebrews, the history of the Israelites is used to warn us of the need to keep longing for our eternal Sabbath. Even today, even in the new covenant blessings, part of God's good purposes in the gift of a Sabbath is to have us looking forward to a rest that is yet to come. So what do we know as Christians? We know that our salvation has been secured by the works, not of us, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. We receive a finished and a complete salvation by faith as we trust in him. The striving, the ceasing, the, sorry, the striving and the working ceases, it ends. But we don't experience all of our blessings as Christians right now. And we're supposed to remember that Every Sunday when we gather, as we long for the eternal Sabbath that is yet to come, that's what the writer to the Hebrews encourages us in. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the Israelites' example of disobedience. Our final rest and our promised land come when Jesus returns. Now, if we had more time, we would work through Three references that Paul makes to Sabbaths or special days. And if you want to just jot the references down, you can go home and have a look at them. It's uh, Romans 14, Galatians 4, and Colossians 2. I think in Galatians and Colossians, Paul's main concern is the way that these churches are drifting back towards that old man-made set of rules for the Sabbath. So if you read it in the, in the context of everything that's going on, Galatians and Colossians, they seem to be hankering after that man-made way of finding some sense of assurance and, and earning their salvation before God. And, and Paul warns them not to go back to that old way, not because that's the old faithful Jewish way, but because that's the way that had been made up by men trying to earn their salvation and that was never going to work in the first place. That's the danger that I think Paul's writing to in Galatians and Colossians. Romans 14 is, for me, the hardest verse to understand. Uh, Paul says in Romans 14, verse 5, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Now, if you take that verse in isolation, it could well seem to be saying 
that there is no more special, sacred, holy day in the new covenant. But I don't think that fits the context. If you go home and look at what's going on before and after, Paul is talking before verse 5 about food issues again. And he comes back to food issues again in the rest of verse 6. That's not a new covenant problem. We are free to eat all things with thanksgiving, apart from food when it's being offered to idols, as we're thinking about in 1 Corinthians. And if all of that sounds strange to you because you weren't with us in that series in 1 Corinthians, please listen back online. We are free to eat all things. So why is it that there's a reference to days surrounded by references to food in Romans 14? I think the context is showing us that Paul is speaking to that same tendency to go back to that Jewish system of earning your salvation and treating different days differently. Now, whether Paul was writing to early converts who were continuing to treat the Jewish Sabbath as special, whether they had other holy days that they were considering were special, I honestly don't know. But given everything that we have seen about the Sabbath through the entire Scriptures, given how it is tying us in creation to a God who's made us in His image, given how He calls us to look back and remember how He has redeemed and rescued us, and given all of the ways in which even in the New Covenant, we see the early Christians gathering together as a sacred assembly to worship, albeit on a different day, I don't think... This one verse is going to abolish everything else in which we have seen the goodness of God in giving us a weekly rhythm of rest to worship. So are there differences then between the Old Testament Sabbath and the Lord's Day? Absolutely. Let's be really clear about that. We haven't been rescued from Egypt. Their rescue was great. Ours is better. We've been rescued from sin by the Son of God who came to suffer and die in our place. That's why Christians celebrate on a Sunday. That ceremonial aspect was pointing forwards to Jesus. And neither do we stone people who break the fourth commandment. We don't live under the civil system of a Jewish legal system anymore. So you can rightly say, that our Sabbath rules, here and now, human being to human being, in that sense, are less severe. That's true. The ceremonial aspect has been fulfilled in Jesus. The civil aspect has been ended. It's expired. But the moral aspect remains. For the fourth commandment is one of ten that were inscribed by the finger of God. The fourth commandment, as with all the commandments, reveals to us something of the character and the being of God. It's it's interesting um, when you look at how the discussion about what Christians should do about the Sabbath goes on. Often the focus is on whether it's repeated or whether it's been fulfilled, whether you can view transfer theology, all that kind of stuff. You can talk to me about that afterwards if you like. What often seems to get neglected to me is 
All of the commandments are revealing to us the character and the nature of God. And the fourth does that the clearest. The fourth says, every seventh day, remember who you've been created to be like and who has redeemed you. What greater reason could you have to worship the the nature and the character of God than to remember who he is, how he's made us, and how he's saved us? That's the beauty of all that you see in the fourth commandment. And, And the gift of a day of rest and worship is as needed and as precious today as it has ever been, even today as it continues to make us long for the future. So, very quickly, and without being a Pharisee, what does that look like in practice? I'm going to give you six things, very quickly, to help you see how to delight in the goodness of the Lord's day. Take a note of them, pray over them this week. Uh, By all means, come and speak to me, speak to one another as we think about how to live this out together. Number one, enjoying the Lord's day requires effort during the week. Enjoying the Lord's day requires effort during the week. I don't know if you've ever made this connection before, but your work ethic is connected to your worship. If you live Monday through Saturday constantly procrastinating and pushing your deadlines, you will never be able to enjoy the freedom of rest and worship. Number two, remember your creatureliness and rest. I shan't ask for a show of hands, but if I did, I imagine maybe more than half of us would say we are struggling in a culture of workaholism. There's a culture in our day where we instinctively are trying to build our identity in our career or our reputation or how others view us. God says to you this morning, you've been made to reflect the glory of the King who loves you. If you trust Jesus, he loves you so much. He hasn't only made you to be like him, that has sent his son to die for you simply because he loves you. Does it really matter if you change your job title now? Enjoy the rest that your maker has given you. Number three, rejoice in your salvation. The Jews had a great reason to rejoice. Ours is infinitely greater We haven't been rescued by a Passover lamb that was spread over the lintels of a door. We've been rescued by the blood of the Son of God who came from heaven to live the life we couldn't, to keep this commandment perfectly where we can't, and to die in our place. That's why we gather together. And therefore, we want to make the most of this day together as a church family. And perhaps for some of you, as seasons change and seasons change in life all the way through life, Maybe now is a window to rethink, is there a way I could make a bit more of this day? Even to hear more from from Ed and Katie, to be thinking about how we're praying for the work in Central Asia, to be learning from another part of God's word as we gather this evening. Let's make the most of this day, which gets me to the next point, to invest the day for spiritual good. This This day is not just a day of rest. It is a day of rest. Don't miss that. If you begin another week tired... 
Don't say to God, I wish you'd give me more hours in the week. Because he'll say to you, I've given you a Sabbath. How have you used it? (laughs) But at the same time, don't miss what we should do on this day. I'm not a big gym goer. But uh, for those of you who are, you know that regular gym goers like to talk about different days. Today's a chest day. Today's a neck day. Today's an arm day. Today's a leg day. For Christians, Sunday is your soul day. So use it. When I was a pastor, in se- when I was in seminary, my pastor used to say, how many Christians do you know who say, I just never have the time to do any proper Bible study myself. Never get to read a biography. I never have any time in all the busyness of all the other things God gives me to visit somebody who's sick or struggling in my church. I really struggle to find time to pray or to speak to somebody else about Jesus. It's not because God hasn't given it to us. It's because we're not making the most of the day that he has given. Fifthly, don't judge how other people keep the Lord's day. However you come to understand what Paul is saying in his passages, it couldn't be clearer about the importance of not judging each other. You go through all of the ways that the New Testament tells us how we exercise our freedom as Christians. It is to be for the good and the encouragement of fellow Christians. It's not to look down on other people. It's not to be judgmental. It's not to make other people feel guilty. It is, as Paul says, that we be fully convinced in our own mind and live as unto the Lord. Sixthly and finally, keep fixing your eyes on the rest that's yet to come. I think part of the reason God gave us a Sabbath every week is that we would have that clunking reminder every seventh day that this is not to be where I set all my hope. There is a day coming when I will not have all the frustrations with work that I have where I will not be constantly struggling with sin, where my half-baked obedience and worship is going to be transformed into a glorious, sinless, eternally joyful worship of the God who gave his own son to save my soul. That is when I will know eternal rest. And until then, delight in the day, every week that God has given where we can do all the things that he knows we need to do.